Well, let's begin with, um, I'm going to read, this morning we're going to do a bio, well, really two, two, two brief bio on St. Patrick. What we have going for us is that there's only two brief pieces of, uh, or two documents out there that say anything about him, and he wrote them both himself, and they're pretty short, so that might help us. Before we, uh, before we get into this, um, let's read Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can meet in your house. We thank you for St. Patrick, this man, and his ministry. We pray this morning that as we study, we would be encouraged and that we would be strengthened in our zeal and in our spirits to be able to grow and learn from the work of your servant. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, instead of just reading through all these pages of stuff I have, we'll start off, talk a little bit about where St. Patrick comes from. I think for some people when they hear St. Patrick, if you're anything like me, initially you think of green beer, shamrocks, and strange stories about a man chasing snakes out of Ireland, which all of those things are pretty far from St. Patrick. Maybe he had something to do with shamrocks at some point, but a lot of those are stories that were um, written about him by later historians or monks and monasteries. And so we're going to look as closely as we can at what he's written this morning. Um, to give you a little background here, no one knows when he was born but it's probably sometime around the close of the 4th century, opening of the 5th century, somewhere possibly um, between, uh, probably sometime between 390, 411, something like that. There's all kinds of numbers out there. You'll find there's also a man named Palladius who um, may have gone to Ireland before Patrick did, and there's a whole uh, scheme of trying to make Patrick look like he was the first there or he was the most influential, and so we want to try and, you know, play with the numbers a little bit. There's theories out there that things like that happened. Um, it's important to note, um, let's see here, if I can just kind of spot shoot these things. Uh, 411, the glorious city of Rome is attacked by the Visigoths, and so... Um, the world is shaken, and Rome begins its formal decline um, into, um, into its eventual demise. Um, it would, at least on the eastern, the, uh, the western um, section of Rome is gone. So basically all you have is the eastern section, which then kind of continues on as the Byzantine Empire until the death of Constantine XI. Um, but as far as Britain is concerned, which is where Patrick is from, those things are kind of far away. So Patrick is not Irish. He is a Briton. 
He was born a Roman citizen to an affluent family in Britain in the town of Banovum. His father, Calpornius, was a decurion and a wealthy member of the patrician class, which was the ruling class of the Roman Empire. The taxes, levied, the taxes levied on the wealthy upper class in the empire were heavy, and it was the decurion's job to collect these taxes. The position brought with it status, and it was hereditary, so that the, so that the position could only be passed down by birth. More than likely, it was expected that Patrick would take up the same position when he was old enough. Patrick's Latin name, Patricius, the name he uses in his confessio, or confession means noble of the patrician class. So along with the role of a decurion, Patrick's father was also a deacon in the church. And his father, or Patrick's grandfather, was a priest. And there's nothing known about uh, Patrick's father or his grandfather and their role as clergymen. And what's interesting is that at this time, it was very common for the wealthy in the Roman citizenry to seek positions in the clergy because that class was exempt from the higher taxes that were levied on the wealthy upper class. So there are, you can infer that it could be because he was a wealthy man who would have uh, heavy taxes levied against him that he sought this for um, sordid gain, for lack of a better term. But we don't know that, we do not know why um, it, why his father or his grandfather uh, were clergymen. So we can't, we can't infer anything beyond what was true. What we do know is that Patrick um, did not pursue a life in the clergy for those reasons. <clears throat> the passages, two passages that come to mind, um, the Apostle Paul and then the Apostle Peter um, in 1 Timothy, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. And then in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And as we'll see, that's exactly what the kind of life that Patrick reflected. So Patrick grew up in an affluent family. He grew up in Britain, probably in the western side, of the islands because when he was 16, he was captured by Irish raiders, pirates, slave traders. And so his family was off. He was uh, at home and um, these slave traders, it was very common for these raids to come over from Ireland. And Ireland had not been colonized by Rome. Um, there were ideas of doing that at some point, but no one ever really got around to doing it. And so Britain had been um, it had been well seated um, as a Roman uh, nation for probably about 300 years. Um, so since early, probably 40 AD, um, 70 AD, around that time, um, there you have, you have like the, if you've heard of Boudicca, Queen Boudicca and these uprisings and things like that, you had, it was a slow going process, but eventually Rome took over like they did so many other places. And uh, so, it wasn't this kind of Britons were fighting against, were fighting against Rome. These citizens were well-established uh, as wealthy class and, and would have had all the privileges that a, a typical Roman citizen would have. This was situated at the very edge, the western edge of the Roman Empire. So Patrick grows up in an affluent family. Also important to note is at this time, um, you have Rome is starting to fall apart. They're starting to be attacked from barbarians in different areas in Britain, 
you do have some uprising from the nationals, as well as you have invasions from the Picts, you have the Saxons, you have Jutes, you have all these people, you have the Irish coming in. And so uh, Rome is not able to support um, the kind of conflict that's happening. Then the, the different um, settlements that were set up and the defenses that were set up by Rome had no means of handling this kind of uh, conflict. So um, Rome begins to slowly lose its hold in Britain as far as, um, how it's as, far as its government is concerned. But uh, there's a huge Christian influence, which was, um, um, which was a result of Roman settlements. Um, Constantine, uh, Emperor Theodosius, and um, these edicts that were put in place. And so this all comes over to Britain just like it did everywhere else in the empire. And so you had churches in Britain, you had a well-established church, you had bishops, you had clergymen, um, as we see from Patrick's father and his uh, grandfather. There wasn't a great system of ordaining and training men. It was all pretty much to the decisions of the bishops um, at this time. And so obviously, as we mentioned before, you could have men seeking position in the clergy, um, and all they'd have to do is go to the bishop, and if the bishop decided, yeah, or if he was convinced that you know you should be ordained, if he was not convinced, then you couldn't you couldn't seek ordination. Um, so it was left up uh, very solely um, to probably one man in in most instance, instances. So Patrick grows up; he's 16, and he's captured by these pirates from Ireland and taken over um, into Ireland. And in his confession, he says, I was then barely 16. I had neglected the true God, and when I was carried off into captivity in Ireland along with a great number of people, it was well-deserved, for we cut ourselves off from God and did not keep his commandments. And we disobeyed our bishops who were reminding us of our salvation. God revealed his being to us through his wrath. He scattered us among foreign peoples, even to the end of the earth, where appropriately I have my own small existence among strangers." So Patrick dwells, uh, what he ends up doing is he ends up taking care of sheep, which would have been the lowest um, position for a slave. Even taking care of cattle, uh, taking care of pigs, was held in greater esteem than taking care of sheep. So Patrick is a slave, um, and he is caring for sheep during this time. He's learning how to feed sheep, how to take care of them, and protect them from wolves. So while his friends go to the Latin school in the style of the Roman Empire in Britain and uh, become learned, Patrick is taking care of sheep and enrolling in the school of hard knocks um, to prepare for the ministry as a shepherd. He also says, but after I had arrived in Ireland, I found myself pasturing flocks daily, and I prayed a number of times each day. More and more, the love and fear of God came to me, and faith grew, and my spirit was exercised, until I was praying up to a hundred times every day, and in the night nearly as often, so that I would even remain in the woods and on the mountain in snow, frost and rain, waking to pray before first light. And I felt no ill effect, nor was I in any way sluggish because as I now realize, the spirit was seething in me. So for six years, Patrick worked as a slave, taking care of sheep. And he does this for a while until one night, as he says, and it was there, in fact, that one night in my sleep, I heard a voice saying to me, 
It is good that you fast, who will go soon to your homeland. And again, after a short space of time, I heard this pronouncement, look, your ship is ready. And it was not nearby, but was, as it happened, 200 miles away. I had never been there, and I know not a person there, and shortly afterwards, I fled from that place, leaving the man with whom I had been for six years. I traveled with the aid of God's power who guided me successfully on my way, and I had nothing to fear until I arrived at that ship. So Patrick does what no one does after they are captured as a slave. He escapes, and he ends up finding his way back home. He, um, he finds these sailors and uh, ends up, um, he prays, and the Lord makes a way for him to be able to get on the ship and get back home eventually. And when he traveled, um, when he traveled back home, obviously his parents, his friends, everyone that knew him was surprised to see him because people didn't come back once they were captured as slaves. And it was probably um, at some point, uh, Patrick, uh, once he gets home, he, he has another dream. This is a common thing with Patrick. Um, he has a dream and... Um, he, um, there's, a, there's a space in the dream where he's reading from, he's given this, um, this paper and he's reading through it, right? And all of a sudden, he's burdened for the Irish people and realizes that he has to go back and um, evangelize them. But he couldn't just up and go. Um, he needed to make up for the schooling that he had lost because in order to go and plant churches, you had to be a bishop, um, you had to be able to set up churches and ordain clergy, and that was the role of the bishop. So Patrick had to seek a position as a bishop. We don't know how he did this. We don't know if he found a bishop and if it was a sort of a laid-back kind of process where, you know, like some of the um, Roman citizens were just seeking a tax out, um, and they kind of, it was probably really simple. Um, um, for someone pursuing a position in the clergy, um, who was planning to do ministry and plant churches, um, that would probably not have flown. So there's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of theories about what the training looked like, right? And from the earliest times until now, um, there have been you know, mentions of where he could have studied. You know, he could have studied with someone in Britain. He could have studied, um, he could have gone to Lorraine, uh, which was um, where a, a lot of the ministers and leaders in Gaul uh, would go to study. It was a famous, uh, pretty prodigious monastery at the time. We don't know. Probably, most likely, the process was slow, and he had to work his way through um, ordination as he came on as a layman, a deacon, probably worked his way as um, a priest, and then eventually um, became a bishop. And we do see that there were, um, his, his path wasn't laid out for him perfectly. Um, there was opposition that he had to face in Britain before he went, and then after he gets over there, he also faces opposition. He eventually gets over there, he does get ordained, um, but people become jealous of him, and then they start to, his countrymen, uh, his seniors, they start to make up these stories about how Patrick uh, was not qualified for the ministry. They point out a particular sin that he confesses when he's a young boy. Um, he, was, he confesses a sin when he was 15 years old. We never find out what that sin was, but he confesses it, and this is what spurs him to write his confessio or confession. 
and it's a defense against his ministry in Ireland and the work that God has called him to. And so even after he makes it to Ireland, he faces opposition, and not, from, not just from the Irish, but from his own people. And so both documents that we have are um, autobiographical. They also are defenses that Patrick is forced to make. He talks about wanting to write, wanting to explain the work he's doing so that people will know the work that God is doing in Ireland. But he also says how his writing was poor. He wasn't schooled in Latin as a kid. And because of his, um, because of his capture, and so, um, and so he kind of writes it off, and then he's forced into it. <clears throat> and these two documents are really the only surviving things that we have that, from the 5th century. And now these would be copies. Um, I think the oldest copy that exists right now of the Confession and then the other letter, a uh, letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, um, dates around the ninth century from the Book of Armagh, and um, um, and then there's been other copies that have been made since then as well, Um, but we don't actually have one that's from the fifth century. Nothing exists. The only other things we know about Britain from the fifth century are uh, compiled from a guy named Gildas, who in his preface to uh, the ruin of Britain Writes, about, um, writes a little bit about the fifth century, but it's kind of muddled in a way that doesn't give us a whole lot of info. Um, the date, or the places, the names are all sort of shifted, and uh, we can't get a whole lot from that. So this time is pretty much a silent time as far as information goes, aside from these two, these two letters of Patrick when it comes to the fifth century. When he travels back to Ireland, he's faced with opposition. There would be kings in Ireland since the time of Christ all the way up to the invasion of the Normans, Um, there would probably have been anywhere from around 150 kings at any given point in Ireland, which is kind of insane considering the population was probably somewhere around a half a million. Um, So there was all these kings. They had over regions and towns and areas, and in order to set up churches, Patrick would have had to appease these kings. He couldn't just waltz into town and start preaching the gospel. Um, So he had probably had to bribe these kings, and he talks about that in his letters. And, um, <clears throat> and so not only is he faced with trying to evangelize the pagan people, but he also is trying to find his way into um, the way of life and being able to do things in a way that um, he's not going to get kicked out or killed or captured or enslaved. And it, he, does come close to some, uh, he does come close to being enslaved again a few times. Um, a couple near misses. So Patrick continues to do his work in Ireland. We don't know if he was the first person in Ireland. Um, There's a good chance that there was already a church there, and he, as a bishop, generally, they would be sent to an already existing set-up church, and they would work out of that church. We don't know. Um, If Patrick was the one to set up the first church in Ireland, there's evidence that says someone else was there before him, but he certainly has the reputation of... um, the, uh, um, the most significant force of evangelism at that time. His second letter, a letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, um, is, is a heart-wrenching uh, letter. Um, he had evangelized a certain portion of um, Irish people, and they had 
they had been converted and were just being baptized. And they were on their way home. They even had their baptismal robes on. And these soldiers come over um, from Britain and they raid the coast of Ireland and they, ca they kill and slaughter many of these people and then capture uh, several of them and bring them back to Britain in order to sell them as slaves. Um, this is the same kind of thing that was going on that, that happened to Patrick, only it's the shoe is put on the other foot. Um, after the sacking of Rome, um, and um, Rome's presence begins to pull out of Britain, and there's no fortifications. You have barbarians attacking from all sides in Britain, and so you have these men that kind of rise up known as tyrants. And there's a few names that, um, that exist. Caroticus is one, Vertigorn, and... Um, and this, uh, this other guy, um, what's his name? Ambrosius Aurelianus, which could be the guy that uh, the tales of King Arthur come from. Uh, so um, you have these guys that rise up, and they kind of act more like Celtic chieftains of a sort, as opposed to Roman uh, soldiers or leaders. Um, they basically just get clans of people together, and they just start fighting off these uh, Pictish invaders and the Saxons, and it actually works for a while. Um, they are successful at this, but where Caroticus comes in is they get the idea that they're going to pay back the Irish for their raids, so they go over to Ireland. And so you have this terrible tale of these brand new Christians just coming to the faith, and they are attacked um, by these, these raiders. And so Patrick writes this letter um, he first appeals to, he sends, um, he sends um, a fellow clergyman um, to these soldiers, to Caroticus, to say, please return the captives and some of the loot that you guys plundered. These were Christians, and they just laugh at him and scoff. And so Patrick's ire is raised, and he writes this letter to Caroticus, which um, is, again, if you're going to read anything about St. Patrick, there's only two documents out there, so it's not hard. Um, the confession and then the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. They're very plain, they're very simple, they're not hard to read, they're encouraging. And so if you're gonna start anywhere, read those, read those two letters. Um, I'd say before you read any biographies or anything like that, just go straight to his letters and you can work your way out from there. So he begins this letter to the soldiers of Caroticus like this. I, Patrick, a sinner, an unlettered, declare myself to be a bishop publicly established in Ireland. I, firmly, I am firmly of the opinion that whatever I am, I have received from God. I live among barbarian foreigners, a stranger in exile for the love of God, as he is my witness, and I would not have chosen to speak as harshly and sternly as I must, but the zeal of God compels me, and Christ's truth urges me. For love of my neighbors and children on whose behalf I gave up my parents and my homeland, and my very life until death, if I am worthy, I live for my God to teach the heathen, even if many look down on me. And he goes on, skipping to another section. On the day after the catechumens, and he's talking about um, the capture of um, these Irish Christians. On the day after the catechumens, wearing their white robes, had been anointed, the oil shone on their brows as they were cut down and slaughtered by the swords of those I have mentioned. I sent a holy priest whom I taught from childhood, together with some clerics, with a letter requesting that they return some of the loot and the baptized captives to us. They laughed aloud at them. On this account, I do not know whom I should lament more, those who were killed or captured, or those whom Satan has so thoroughly ensnared. 
for they will be consigned along with him to the eternal pains of hell, since he who commits sin is a slave and will be known as a son of Satan. Therefore, let every God-fearing man know that they, the murderer of kin, the fratricide, the ravening wolves who devour God's people like a meal of bread, are strangers to me and to my God, whose ambassador I am. As it is said, the wicked have destroyed your law, O Lord, that law which at the end of time he has graciously planted most successfully in Ireland so that it may be firmly founded there with God's favor. It's an intense letter. Where then will Caroticus, and this is towards the end, where then will Caroticus and his most criminal crew, rebels against Christ, where will they see themselves? They who have distributed young Christian girls as prizes for the sake of a wretched worldly kingdom which will pass away anyway in an instant, like mere mist or smoke which is dispersed by the wind. Deceitful sinners will perish in the face of the Lord. The just, on the other hand, will feast in perfect harmony with Christ. They will judge the nations and rule over the wicked kings forever and ever. Amen. And then... He ends the letter this way, most earnestly I ask whichever servant of God may be willing to be the bearer of this letter so that no one may for any reason withdraw or hide it, but rather so that it may be read aloud in public and in the presence of Caroticus himself, because if sometime God should inspire them to come back to their senses of him and however late, if they should repent of such unholiness as they have committed, murder of the Lord's brethren, And if they should release the baptized prisoners whom they had captured, so may they merit life from God, and may they be restored to wholeness now and forever. Peace in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Patrick doesn't lose, he he doesn't lose his fatherly care for his Christian brethren who have been murdered, who have been captured, and he doesn't lose his fatherly care for... um, for these men, but calls them to repentance. So this letter is, is a letter that is a warning, um, but also he leaves space at the end, an invitation for repentance. We see from Patrick's writing a clear belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, St. Augustine would have been slightly before St. Patrick, probably, and um, his battling against another Britain-born man, Roman citizen, named Pelagius, was what what prompted him to assert uh, with vehemence the doctrine of original sin. And so some of these things were were cropping up all over the place, right? You had Arianism, you had had Pelagianism, and um, we see in, in Patrick's writings that there's a clear doctrine of the Trinity. He refers to the Trinity several times um, and even more so expounds in the offices of the persons of the Trinity. We see a clear belief in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Patrick is very in tune with God. He's a man of prayer. He's praying a hundred times a day and well, he's praying a hundred times during the day and then as many times during the night, so 200 times a day (laughs) or more. And and so he's in tune with, with the Lord and his leading and his guiding. And I think that these are things that, that we can pick out from his letters, his devotion to the poor, his devotion to God's people, um, his, 
his sacrificing of his career, his life, his affluence, all of these things, leaving all of that for the sake of the gospel. And uh, through his letters, we see, we see not a man who, who boasts um, for the sake of boasting about himself or what he's done or where he came from, but a man who just wants to boast about God's work. And that's what he talks about in his letters. It's, it's all about, these were my sins, but thanks be to God that he saved me from these things. And because of that, I'm going to go tell people about Jesus. And, why, and how could I not? <clears throat> so I think I'll end here with, this is towards the end of the confession, his confessio, his defense of his ministry in Ireland. He says at the end, And if I have ever succeeded in following any good for the sake of God, whom I love, I pray him that with others of his converts and captives in his name, I may shed my blood, even though I might go without burial, or my miserable corpse might be torn limb from limb by dogs or wild beasts, or the birds of the air might devour it. I know for certain that if this should happen to me, I should gain my soul along with my body, because without any doubt, on that day, we will rise again in the brightness of the sun that is in the glory of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, as children of the living God and as co-heirs of Christ, and we will be molded to his image, and we will then reign from him and through him and in him. So there's a brief, there's a brief snippet of St. Patrick. Um, suggested readings, again, the Confessio. Um, you can probably Google those things. You don't have to buy them. You can just Google St. Patrick's Confession. You'll find it somewhere. Some, there's some free, those should be documents in, in the public domain that are free that you can, you can find translations of in English. Um, here's, uh, this book here is called St. Patrick's World. It's by Liam de Puer. And basically what he does, he's a scholar, and what he's done, he, he talks a little bit about St. Patrick and gives some, some preambles and some descriptions, but most of it is just simply compiling source documents. So he's got pat translations of Patrick's letters. The translations I read are from this book, uh, his translations. Um, and um, he also has other historical documents from the time period. Um, Chronicle of Prosper of Aquitaine is in here, which uh, the second part of it. And, you can, and basically, you just read, uh, you can just read different things that uh, were going on. And he's just written different dates. Um, some of the things we talked about, like the sacking of Rome, things like that. He's got, the, obviously, has those dates in there. So you've got documents like that that have nothing to do with Patrick directly, but they tell you about the time before and after. Um, again, you can, you can get... Uh, you can get this, uh, the, uh, the Ruin of Britain by Gildas. It's kind of a strange read. Um, and the, the preface, which talks a little bit about the 5th century again, um, he's basically a prophet. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a monk, he's a prophet, and he's railing against atrocities that are going on in the church. Um, kind, of a, kind of an interesting guy. He's, he's around at the time when monasticism has its height. So I don't necessarily recommend reading Gildas to get your spiritual doctrinal fix. Um, <laughs> but it's the only thing out there that exists from the 5th century, uh, or that tells us about the 5th century. Um, another book I had, here's a this is, a, this is a biography by Philip Freeman, St. Patrick of Ireland. He's a scholar, um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this biography. The problem with reading biographies is that generally they have a bunch of extra stuff that they, 
intertwine in there that you don't really know if it's true or not, and then their own opinions are in there as well. Um, so I'd say just read, read Patrick's letters, and then through doing that, you can, you can tap into other sources, um, you know, that are going on at the time. Um, let's see, what time is it? 10.03. I guess we have time for questions. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great point. So, um, you know, as we as we look at as you read St. Patrick's letters, you know, you hear these things that everybody thinks is great about him, but then you actually hear about the man's life, and it's like, whoa, his life was actually way better. We thought he was just this goofy guy that you know was all about green beer and stuff. Um, so, what you've got, um, you've got a lot of these guys like this um, Muir Q, however you say his name. That's probably, I'd probably butcher that because I'm not Irish. But he's a, he's a guy who um, uh, was writing, he wrote about St. Patrick. And again, St. Patrick's influence was heavy in Ireland. And so as he, his fame gains traction, these men start trying to, they want to make him, it's really up in the north of Ireland that you have these kind of um, large celebrations of the man. But you have these scholars, you have these monks that are writing about him, and they're trying to bolster his image. They're trying to make him look like he's something fantastic. They're trying to do the exact opposite of what Patrick was trying to do. <laughs> As Patrick is being self-effacing, they're trying to loud his image and um, basically uh, create a poster boy that they can, they can uh, <clears throat> get behind. So I think some, some of it's probably, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can read, there's, there's different biographies. Um, this, the, there's the, again, this Muir Q's Life of St. Patrick. It's a pretty famous one. Um, that's where a lot of, some of these crazy ideas and mythologies and fantastical stories about Patrick come from. Um, uh, and then there's other, there's other similar things um, that, that you can run across. And then there's, I, I, was, I was reading through one, one author, and they were talking about the modern-day St. Patrick, the, the parades that they do for St. Patrick. And, and he was saying, you know, if Patrick was invited over to a friend's house and he was sitting outside, um, was invited to sit outside the balcony and watch the parade from below, he would have jumped off the balcony and started tearing through the group and shouting, stop, stop. <laughs> because he would have been completely incensed by, um, by this the louding of him instead of the work of God. So, The culture of Ireland when Patrick came over, so yeah, it was it was very much entrenched in paganism. So there were several gods. Um, Dagda was one of them, and um, the people had rituals. Um, they would regularly try to appease these gods by 
going to sacred pools and dropping gold and riches and things. In fact, there's been several of these halls where they've pulled out, you know, 100, you know, 150 gold pieces, silver ingots, things like that from these pools where they're dumping to appease the gods. And you had these priests called druids, and they were kind of the mediators. And so um, they were estranged, they were kind of a strange lot. And this is, um, this is what Patrick kind of entered into. And I think that you see some, you see some intermingling as the years pass after Patrick's evangelization of the area, you see this intermingling of some of these Druid cultures and things like this with, uh, with Christianity. Probably one example would be uh, the Book of Kells. It's, it's, a pretty, it's probably um, that and St. Patrick's writings are probably the oldest surviving documents um, that Ireland has. Um, but it's a very ornate book. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a book that depicts the gospel, four gospels. And so there's all kinds of pictures and things that are inter interwoven in there. And, um, and so there's, there's ideas that some, in fact, some of the prayers that are attributed to St. Patrick um, uh, are, uh, people will point those out and say that's very Druid-like in the way that the, the prayer is composed. Um, which there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, uh, wrong with uh, teaching, um, you know, as the Apostle Paul basically <laughs> told the Athenians, you know, <laughs> you're serving an un unknown God, I'm, I'm coming here to tell you who he is. Um, you know, they're, you know they, were, they were straining and reaching for the one true God and failing miserably, you know, failing false, or serving false gods. So there was, there was obviously this evangelistic work of trying to break through to the people, break these false ideas about that these Druids had, you know, come up with and, um, and teach them about the Triune God. Yes, yeah, so he would, have, he would have had access to the scriptures. Um, the Latin Vulgate that we're familiar with, which Jerome was responsible for, was just coming on the scene, so he probably would not have had access to that one. He would have, there, was, there was another Bible which preceded that, which was um, less accurate, um, and so sometimes in his scripture, sometimes when you're reading through his translations of scripture, You'll, you'll, or these English translations of him basically using Latin scriptures, and most of the time it's paraphrasing, like all the church fathers, they're just living these scriptures as they're writing. They're in their heads and their hearts. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought the same thought when, when, he's, when, he's, uh, when he's writing to uh, the soldiers of Caroticus, you know, his, his opening defense, you know, he asserts the authority of God. His position as a bishop is, this is, I am, I am God's herald. I'm his servant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
Yeah, that's the, that's a good question. Um, I I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't know that it's made clear exactly. Um, so he would they had a villa that they lived in, and Patrick was not actually at. I don't think he was actually at their home. He was he was he was somewhere else, and his parents were away. I don't know that uh, I don't know that they were off at church and he was goofing off, but um, it could be that he very well could have been. His, the way that he talks about his life says that, uh, you know, he probably did goof off. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, that's, that's what I was saying with biographies about St. Patrick. You get into a lot of, uh, um, because there's not a lot about him, Generally, authors are trying to find a way to fill pages, and so they they kind of get um, they get more into narrative than just simply stating the things in the in the letters. <clears throat> yeah, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that's a that's a great question. I've wondered the same thing. There is evidence that it very well could have come from him. There's people that point it to him, and not just people that you know in modern day, but you can go back to older sources um, that would attrib- attribute it to him. There is no evidence that says that he wrote it, though. We don't know. Um, it is, yeah. Was he a Roman Catholic? So, yeah, so at this time, um, the Church of Rome had not become what we think of as the Church of Rome today, as Roman Catholicism as we know it. Again, Patrick's grandfather was married, right, and had children. That's where Patrick came from. So um, (laughs) I guess you guys didn't come for a biology lesson. (laughs) That was free. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so his... uh, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the things, like monasticism, really, when Patrick was born, hadn't really come on the scene either. That, was, that really came down the pike later. Um, it, really, it was right after Patrick, probably in the later centuries, that monasticism really took off. And so a lot of the things that we associate with Roman Catholicism, uh, these, were, these were later iterations in the church. There wasn't a whole lot of denominationalism at the time. Um, they were talking, you know, 400 years after um, 300 to 400 years after the apostles. So um, uh, you, do, you do get a lot of this kind of uh, Roman nationalism uh, intertwined in after you have Constantine and you have Christianity made as a dominant religion. Uh, you do get some interesting, you know, uh, depictions of Christianity that are false depictions, you know, about how uh, basically wanting to parade um, <clears throat> uh, Christianity, like, you know, you, you, you'd parade the Roman gods, so to speak. I mean, I may be exaggerating that to some degree, but, you know, wanting to have this idea of victory and that sort of thing, right? You know, and painting these extravagant murals and mosaics and things like that, to, um, which is true. Christianity is, is, uh, is a conquering <laughs> faith. Um, the gates of hell will, will not prevail against the church, but probably not exactly in the way that... Uh, um, the early Romans who were putting forth Christianity were thinking. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what to say about Patrick's visions as far as what I think about visions or, um, or his visions in particular, but um, I do think that I th I think that it's probably hard for uh, reformed folk Presbyterians to digest some of these things because it's extravagant. We'd we'd call him a charismatic, you know. He'd be the he'd be the guy that shows up at church and probably is you know. Um, a little, say just a little, maybe uh, untethered. <laughs> um, but you know, he's um, his visions and these things—they—they're all very um, practical. They're not—they're not like harebrained, like, "Hey, I had this, you know, and you know, I need to go out and paint these houses green, or you know, I need to go do something crazy." It's, you know, he feels constrained to the work of the ministry, and so um, and. And, and so, we, you know, again, um, uh, as far as, you know, I think what we can take away from it, what I gained from it is, is seeing how he was a man of prayer and he was in tune to the voice of God. Whether God is coming out of the clouds or the Spirit is pressing on his heart, you know, that's what I learned from it. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's. I'm sure there was some. There was some things that were extravagant about Patrick that <laughs> we wouldn't endorse. <laughs> but there's things that are extravagant about all of us that we wouldn't endorse. <laughs> but yeah, I kind of see him as sort of like an Amos kind of guy. He was, you know, untutored, and uh, um, he obviously had to go through training later in life, but. Um, he's not interested in impressing people with what he's doing and I don't think he's trying to do that with his visions when he's recounting those things as some as a lot of times you find <clears throat> yeah yeah what's that was he martyred? I, I don't know. I don't know how he died. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that is recorded anywhere. I didn't come across anything about it when I was reading. Um, I think, yeah, pretty much all those, the, the two letters that we have, is, that's all, that's it. Um, and then everything else is just kind of inferred um, from other sources. So yeah, I'm not sure how he died. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure someone made up an extravagant story <laughs> somewhere along the lines. <laughs> well, it is 10:19. <clears throat> Anything else? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for St. Patrick, his love for his enemies, his love for the people that enslaved him, um, a love, Father, that could only be put into his heart by your spirit. And we pray, Father, that 
your spirit would put into us the same kind of love, the same kind of fire, the same kind of zeal, um, and hearts of prayer that are devoted to communing with you on a daily basis, Father. May we be able to say uh, with Patrick um, that we pray um, hundreds of times a day, Father, if only. Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Bless us as we uh, prepare to worship you now um, through song and hearing your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.